welcome to The Bell Podcast, a production of Mental Health America of Kentucky. I'm your host, Marcy Timmerman. Today, I am pleased to introduce to you Amber Nasland. She is a senior content manager at LinkedIn. She's a well-known keynote speaker. She blogs on both LinkedIn and at Breast Tech Thinking. She is a single mom, a horse lover, and discusses mental health publicly. She's someone I've been following for many years because she speaks often about social media, nonprofit social media, and other marketing terms, which I've been personally a fan of for many years in my jobs. But right now, we're going to discuss a lot of things about her public presence, her her experiences with mental health, and how important she thinks it is for folks with social media and marketing to take those pieces into account. So without further ado, here's our interview with Amber Nasland. One of the things I love about you on Twitter is that you're very um, authentic there. You try to mix real life with professional life. And I think people see the good, the bad, and the ugly sometimes, right? <laughs> but also the pretty yeah. and the awesome and the, and the congratulatory. So I was wondering, like, what made you decide to be that way on social media? What made you kind of adopt that normal life kind of look to things? You know, I, like I'd love to say it was like a it was a super strategic and conscious decision, but I'm not sure that would be honest. <laughs> I think I think it's actually just sort of the way that I approach any kind of communication channel. I guess I don't I don't see a whole lot of purpose in veneering things too carefully, mostly because I think I'm drawn to people who are also really open and authentic. So I think I try to be that myself, but also like attracts like. So if I, if, if that's kind of how I operate, hopefully I'll draw people toward me that are similar. But what's been interesting along the way is that even though I don't know it was a conscious decision at first, over time, some of the most positive feedback I've had from people is that. It's like, oh, gee, I feel like you're so approachable or I feel like you're so real. And maybe part of my small purpose on the planet is for other people to feel less alone in being who they are. So I like that I can maybe give people a little bit of a nudge. So it's like, see, look, I can show all sides of me and it's still okay. And so, so can you, and I I don't expect everybody to be as brazen as I am all the time, but maybe it encourages somebody to be a little bit more open or a little bit more honest about something. And we could all probably use a dose of that today. <laughs> Especially during COVID-19, right? Yeah, <laughs> like seriously. Knowing that we're all parenting in a pandemic and things like yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever <laughs> group. <of> th- <laughs> yeah, yeah that, well, that's exactly it. I mean, life is messy on a good day and it's like messy is all get out right now. So I think people being able to say like, hey, we're all struggling. We all have things that are hard. We're all, we've all got stuff going on. Seeing that in other people makes everyone feel a little bit less like a disaster themselves. Agreed. And we get that feedback here at MHA. I'm sure you've seen some of our posts because I retweet them myself, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, since I'm the executive director, I have to do that, right? Um, yeah, it's like but, hazard. That's kind of your job. Yeah, just kind yeah. of who it is. But one of our goals is mental wellness because everyone has a brain. Everyone has feelings. and Everyone has mental health. It might be good, bad, middling somewhere in there the day, each day. But we all have it, right? We don't have to be diagnosed with an illness to need mental health help. And so it's kind of what we look for is for folks to realize, you know, you can take care of your mental health and maybe prevent illness in some cases. Absolutely. That's a huge, uh, I think, passion point of mine is that we're so careful about preventative health in almost every other aspect of our lives. You know, we go get our annual physicals, we go to the dentist for a checkup, we do all that stuff. 
but somehow we wait until we're in crisis to believe that mental health is something that deserves prioritization in our world. And I very much view the therapy that I do as, I mean, surely those things were were restorative in terms of, you know, helping through traumas or difficult experiences, but they've also been very preventative for me over a long period of time, just as a proactive measure to take care of my mental health. It's as important to me as, you know, getting out and exercising or making sure I get my blood work done like I'm supposed to. So I think it's really important. And the stigma around that is difficult for a lot of people to get their head around because it's an, you know, mental stuff isn't stuff we can see or touch or feel Mm -hmm. uh, in the same way. But I think it's every bit as important to our overall well-being. I'm glad to hear you say that. Thanks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, some of our messaging is resonating with some people who are authentic, which is great. So yeah, that is why I bring up the authenticity is I feel like, you know, we used to talk about marketing and branding being authentic or not, right? If you're all polished and shiny, it's maybe not a great thing for your brand. You have to be real when times are tough, right? I'm seeing some brands do that. So it's interesting that, you know, what works for people works for brands sometimes too. And for nonprofits, especially like ours, being authentic is the key, I think, to, to reaching people. So there's no question that people are drawn to the brands and organizations that can show their humanity through all of that. It's so easy to get caught up in the trappings of everything being so perfect and polished and carefully scripted and architected, but that's not how humans work. We're messy and we're not linear and we're multifaceted. So Hopefully, by seeing that, even in the brands and companies that we choose to do business with, aligning our values to those things means working with companies that we like and being able to see a little bit of the people behind the logos is an important factor. That's true. Do you think that social media and marketing have a a role in mental health as a whole, like the good, the bad, concerning, or the things you see that are good, bad, concerning? Yeah, well, yes, uh, is the short answer. The longer answer is... Social media as a medium, you know, as a, an avenue is inert, you know, it is what we make of it. So it's, it, it's the technology that underlies it can be used for good or evil. And I, you know, we all see it used in a number of different ways. I think we as the citizens who populate social media have a responsibility to think about the impact of our words and our actions and the way that we treat people and the way that we Um, show up in those channels because words have power. And I think it's really easy to feel the anonymity behind the keyboard and how easy it is to pop something off without thinking about it, without thinking about the downstream implications of what you say or to whom you say it. And all you have to, I mean, all you have to do is turn around and look at the impact that words and actions have on people on social media all the time from bullying to doxing to cancel culture to all kinds of things that are just really we have short wicks and we have short tolerance for and not that's not always a bad thing i think there's a time and a place for the power of having these channels be exposing of really bad actors but that's a double-edged sword and it's really easy for that kind of thing to come back and bite you So I think we have to take care with that and be a bit more thoughtful. I think when we were first all navigating the social media world, our excitement overtook our responsibility sometimes. But as these things are now just part of the fabric of how we communicate, we have to be conscious of how we use them, whether that's from a marketing standpoint as a brand and how and what we say to our market and community, or as individuals and how we interact 
on a very either personal level or a, a broader level if you happen to be someone who has an audience and a platform. And that's, you know, it, yes, the reality is that as you build presence and platform, you do have an obligation and a responsibility to be careful about how you use that. And it, I, I think the importance of that is only growing, not shrinking. And all I, all I need to see that is how my 13-year-old daughter is influenced by what she sees and watches on social media and how important it is for me to have conversations with her outside of that, to check in on her mental health, to make sure that she's navigating these channels carefully, that she's being kind and compassionate and thoughtful about how she communicates with people. So it, it's part and parcel to the whole thing. And I think we'd all be a little remiss if we didn't remember that. What have you learned through your own experiences with adulting, life, et cetera, being open about, you know, struggling with maybe mental health issues here and there as every adult does, again, underscoring that. So is there anything particularly that you've learned through all of that that you want to share? Yeah. One of the most enlightening experiences for me was, I don't remember how many years ago this was now, six, seven. I, I, I had the wild and crazy idea to, well, I actually, the, the woman who organizes the TEDx event in Atlanta came to me and was like, I'd really like you to come do a talk. And we started talking about some really, you know, mundane, I guess, topics about it. And what ended up coming up was, was mental health. And she asked me whether I'd be willing to share some of my stories and experiences around that. And I confess at first, the idea scared the pants off me because I mean, why wouldn't it, you know, that's, it's sort of an exposing vulnerable thing to talk about those things in such a candid way. But doing that talk was eye opening in the sense that again, any discomfort that I felt about being judged or shamed or ridiculed um, was so overpowered by the outpouring of people who were like, I can't believe somebody else is feeling this too. I don't feel so alone. I thank you for being brave enough to say, and I don't really think of it as bravery, but like that people felt less like they were suffering in silence. And when you feel seen and validated, it's incredibly healing. So I think what that told me was that the upside to being open and shining a spotlight on some of these things as a society is really important to reducing the stigma we hold around mental illness. Because if one person does it, then maybe 10 people do it, then hundreds of people do it. And the more we do that, the the less this stuff can get whispered about in, you know, dark corners somewhere. And that's how we change it. That's how we change the perception of mental health as something to be ashamed of or, or to be judged for. And I have my fair share of critics and plenty of people who think I'm ridiculous and insufferable, but it's not because I talked about depression and anxiety. They would find that about me no matter what I did or said. So I've just learned for me that the the upsides outweigh the downsides of talking about this stuff. So I don't, I don't plan on changing that anytime soon. Totally agree. There are definitely more upsides than down, although it does take even that internal stigma. You have to turn that off and put it in the back burner and really. Oh yeah. I mean, God, the number of times I've said something out loud and then sat there and said, Oh my Lord, why did I say that? Like, can I take that back? Can I, you know, there have been plenty of times where I feel very exposed and there are times where I, you know, have been accused of maybe accused is a strong word, but people have said, Oh, that, that I'm an oversharer or something like that because people are uncomfortable with that level of transparency, um, frankly, at some times, but I, I don't have to be for them. You know, you choosing to be for 
everyone is always a losing proposition. I can't make everybody happy. So I would rather help and touch the people's lives that I can in a positive way and try to focus on that and not the ones that maybe aren't, um, I'm not their cup of tea. So as you once said in social media marketing, everyone is not a audience, right? And that's still the case, even with that validity and and coming back full circle to a personal life is that yeah, you can't be for everyone. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. It's a, it's a fundamental tenet in marketing. You know, you can't build a brand that is palatable to everybody and you shouldn't um, because it just makes it mundane and generic. And I feel that way about our individual selves too. I, there are some people who are going to like and love who I am and what I stand for. And there are people who aren't, and mm-hmm. I can't, I can't please them all. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. Um, so you write frequently recently in the past, you know, six, nine months about imposter syndrome. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you can kind of explain what that is a little bit for our audience who may not know. And also sure. anything you wanted to add about imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is, it's an actual psychologically studied phenomenon identified as such as imposter syndrome back in the 1970s by a couple of researchers, one of whom was a woman named Pauline Clance. And Dr. Clance and her colleagues studied this, did a bunch of research around people who were feeling overwhelming feelings that despite evidence to the contrary, which is a key part here, despite having evidence to the contrary, that they constantly believed that the work that they did was invalid or that it was sooner or later, somebody was going to find out that they'd been just like faking it all along or that they were a complete fraud. And all of this had just been, all of their success had been due to luck or a fluke or some beneficial swing of circumstance versus all of the hard work and effort um, or talent or capability. And I think it's a thing that it's incredibly common. Originally, the theory was that it was affected women more than men, but that's since been disproven. It's actually quite democratic <laughs> in how it impacts both men and women. It also has a tendency, unsurprisingly, I think, to pop up in people who are high achievers or overachievers or who are a little bit perfectionistic to start with. And wherever we get those signals, whether it's you know from our parents or from society at large, I think it's more common there. But it's for sure something that I experienced. And so, um, and I do think that to your earlier comments, social media can make it worse because it's easy to go online and see somebody's very carefully curated Pinterest feed of their vacations and their perfect outfits and their, the beautiful corner of their home that they took a picture of where the rest of it's a complete disaster, but you know, you're seeing the little vignette that's so carefully manicured. Mm -hmm. So we end up comparing our lives to all of those little snapshots. And then we look at the very real and normal kind of complexity and mess in our lives and go, well, how do I stack up to this? Um, And it came to light very heavily for me several years ago when I had started a business that ultimately failed. And the fallout of that was pretty severe for me, uh, financially, emotionally, psychologically, all, all, all over the place. And it led me to really spend a few years struggling to believe that any of my prior success was actually based on me versus just some stroke of luck. So as is my kind of bent, I ended up just kind of leaning in to study it because I don't, it was something I didn't understand much. But it's been really fascinating to look at it. And I do think that our very digital world um, has an impact on that in a way that can't be ignored. Yeah, I 
I've been sharing your work on some of that, some of your blog posts and that, and it's always surprising to me how many people in my life are experiencing it and didn't know what there was a word for that, right? They didn't know that there was something they can look up to find techniques over, right? A lot of times we at, at MHA and me personally, I'll throw a label on it so that you can Google stuff to help you, right? It's not necessarily a diagnostic label. It's a, you know, you might want to look at this yeah, thing. The spirit behind the, the, or the research that Dr. Clance did originally, because the it's not, it's not a condition, you know, like no. it's not diagnosed. It's not a diagnosed clinical issue. It's more of a situational kind of series of mental patterns. But I find personally, I find it helpful to name things so that if I name things, I can understand them and I can almost attach an identity to them so that I can either, either work to optimize them or get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So understanding that that is a thing that it exists and it's something I've experienced helps me when I start, those feelings start to surface. It's a lot easier for me to be like, oh, that's that thing again. And put those feelings and emotions in their proper place versus, you know, ruminating on them. Like I'm pretty, pretty good at doing left to my own devices. You're not alone in that either. (laughs) So yeah, no, you're right. It's good to be able to say, stop that thought process. That's clearly this issue. And this is why I know that. And that kind of thing. So right. CBT sort of a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy aspect to it. So exactly what it is. Yep. So I would be remiss if I'm in Kentucky and don't ask you about your horse ah. and like what your horse riding is and things like that. I know I will get questions if I don't ask. So. No, that's great. Yes. So my daughter and I are avid equestrians. I've been riding off and on since I was a kid and my daughter is 17 or 13. Now she's been riding for seven years. So she's been, um, yeah, almost seven years. And it's very much, uh, that is definitely a mental health thing for me. That is my escape from the reality of the world. It's the most analog thing in my life. I can go and stick my phone in my tack trunk and close my laptop and just be with my horse. So my daughter and I currently lease a 10-year-old warm blood, a warm blood named Furo. He's owned by a young woman in our barn who's off at college right now. But we, we spend a lot of time at the barn. It's kind of my happy place. And being, we compete in Hunter Jumper, which is a, a discipline some people may know about, yeah. meaning that we you know jump horses over fences, basically. <laughs> we have this thing called the Rolex three-day event in, in yeah, Lexington. Sadly, in Lexington yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm so, so many horse events were getting canceled this year, but yeah. it's definitely, like I said, it's definitely a mental health thing for me. It's a, I, I will never be an Olympic caliber rider. I actually have to work pretty hard to be like decent at it. It's not something that comes super naturally to me, but I love it. And it's something I'm happy to be mediocre at because it just, it gives me the, the escape I need from from my normal day to day. So we have a horse here in a barn about 15 minutes from our house. We're very lucky to be close by and we're there probably four or five days a week. Cool. And that definitely underscores that self-care doesn't have to be something you excel at, right? It can be something you're just mediocre at as long as no, you like no, it. Just, it. The funny thing is that's so hard for me. The, the overachiever <laughs> person in me, you know, I'm used to trying so hard to be the the best at whatever it is I choose to take on. So it's been an adventure for me to embrace the fact that riding is difficult for me as a skill. And it's not one, you know, some kids get on a horse and they have natural talent and it just shows. And I, I am not that person. So I have to work really hard for every little bit of progress that I make with my riding skills. 
But I also find that to be very gratifying because when you do put in the work and you feel the progress, even as difficult as it's been, it's very rewarding. So that's what keeps me coming back. Yep. There's no imposter syndrome when you have to work that hard, right? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> you, you, know, you know already that you have to work for it. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you for taking your time to do this, really. And of course. I appreciate it. Well, that wraps up our interview with Ms. Nasland. I hope you will check out our show notes to find her and her great information all the time. Thank you for listening. Remember, this is a production of Mental Health America of Kentucky. If you find yourself needing additional information and resources, please don't hesitate to reach out to us through our website at mhaky.org. Thank you to Jennifer Longworth, our audio editor at Bourbon Barrel Podcasting. And thank you to Adam Sokoplis, creator of the theme music for our podcast. You can find both of their links as well in our show notes. Donations are always appreciated at mhaky.org to keep this thing running. There's no health without mental health. We hope you'll take care of yours. Have a good day.